Section 25 of Self-Help. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Self-Help. With Illustrations of Conduct and Perseverance by Samuel Smiles. Men of Business, Part 2. In addition to the ordinary working qualities the businessman of highest class requires, quick perception and firmness in the execution of his plans. Tact is also important, and though this is partly the gift of nature, it is yet capable of being cultivated and developed by observation and experience. Men of this quality are quick to see the right mode of action, and, if they have decision of purpose, are prompt to carry out their undertakings to a successful issue. These qualities are especially valuable, and indeed indispensable, in those who direct the action of other men on a large scale, as, for instance, in the case of the commander of an army in the field. It is not merely necessary that the general should be great as a warrior, but also as a man of business. He must possess great tact, much knowledge of character, and the ability to organize the movements of a large mass of men whom he has to feed, clothe, and furnish with whatever may be necessary in order that they may keep the field and win battles. In these respects, Napoleon and Wellington were both first-rate men of business. Though Napoleon had an immense love for details, he also had a vivid power of imagination, which enabled him to look along extended lines of action and deal with those details on a large scale, with judgment and rapidity. He possessed such knowledge of character as enabled him to select, almost unerringly, the best agents for the execution of his designs. But he trusted as little as possible to agents in matters of great moment, on which important results depended. This feature in his character is illustrated in a remarkable degree by the Napoleon Correspondence, now in course of publication, and particularly by the contents of the fifteenth volume, which includes the letters, orders, and despatches written by the Emperor at Finkelstein, a little chateau on the frontier of Poland in the year 1807, shortly after the victory of Elo. The French army was then lying encamped along the river Passage, with the Russians before them, the Austrians on their right flank, and the conquered Prussians in the rear. A long line of communications had to be maintained with France, through a hostile country, but so carefully and with such foresight was this provided for, that it is said Napoleon never missed a post. The movements of armies, the bringing up of reinforcements from remote points in France, Spain, Italy, and Germany, the opening of canals, and the leveling of roads to enable the produce of Poland and Prussia to be readily transported to his encampments, had his unceasing attention down to the minutest details. We find him directing where horses were to be obtained, making arrangements for an adequate supply of saddles, ordering shoes for the soldiers, and specifying the number of rations of bread, biscuits, and spirits that were to be brought to camp or stored in magazines for the use of the troops. At the same time, we find him writing to Paris 
giving directions for the reorganization of the French college, devising a scheme of public education, dictating bulletins and articles for the Moniteur, revising the details of the budgets, giving instructions to architects as to the alterations to be made at the Tuileries and the Church of the Madeleine, throwing an occasional sarcasm at Madame de Stael and the Parisian journals, interfering to put down a squabble at the Grand Opera, carrying on a correspondence with the Sultan of Turkey and the Shah of Persia. So while his body was at Finkelstein, his mind seemed to be working at a hundred different places in Paris, in Europe, and throughout the world. We find him in one letter asking Ney if he has duly received the muskets which have been sent him. In another, he gives directions to Prince Jerome as to the shirts, greatcoats, clothes, shoes, shakos, and arms to be served out to the Württemberg regiments. Again, he presses Cambassares to forward to the army a double stock of corn. The ifs and the buts, said he, are at present out of season, and above all it must be done with speed. Then he informs Daru that the army want shirts, and that they don't come to hand. To Messina he writes, Let me know if your biscuit and bread arrangements are yet completed. To the Grand de de Berg, he gives directions as to the accoutrements of the cuirassiers. They complain that the men want sabres. Send an officer to obtain them at Posen. It is also said they want helmets. Order that they be made at Ebling. It is not by sleeping that one can accomplish anything. Thus no point of detail was neglected, and the energies of all were stimulated into action with extraordinary power. Though many of the emperor's days were occupied by inspections of his troops, in the course of which he sometimes rode from thirty to forty leagues a day, and by reviews, receptions, and affairs of state, leaving but little time for business matters, he neglected nothing on that account, but devoted the greater part of his nights, when necessary, to examining budgets, dictating dispatches, and attending to the thousand matters of detail in the organization and working of the imperial government, the machinery of which was, for the most part, concentrated in his own head. Like Napoleon, the Duke of Wellington was a first-rate man of business, and it is not perhaps saying too much to aver that it was in no small degree because of his possession of a business faculty amounting to genius that the Duke never lost a battle. While at Subaltern he became dissatisfied with the slowness of his promotion, and, having passed from the infantry to the cavalry twice and back again without advancement, he applied to Lord Camden, then Viceroy of Ireland, for employment in the Revenue or Treasury Board. Had he succeeded, no doubt he would have made a first-rate head of a department, as he would have made a first-rate merchant or manufacturer. But his application failed and he remained with the army to become the greatest of British generals. The Duke began his active military career under the Duke of York and General Walmoden in Flanders and Holland, where he learnt, amongst misfortunes and defeats, how bad business arrangements and bad generalship served to ruin the morale of an army. Ten years after entering the army, we find him a colonel in India, reported by his superiors as an officer of indefatigable energy and application. 
he entered into the minutest details of the service and sought to raise the discipline of his men to the highest standard. The regiment of Colonel Wellesley, wrote General Harris in 1799, is a model regiment on the score of soldierly bearing, discipline, instruction, and orderly behavior it is above all praise. Thus, qualifying himself for posts of greater confidence, he was shortly after nominated governor of the capital of Mysore. In the war with the Maharatas, he was first called upon to try his hand at generalship, and at thirty-four he won the memorable Battle of Assay, with an army composed of fifteen hundred British and five thousand sepoys, over twenty thousand Maratha infantry, and thirty thousand cavalry. But so brilliant a victory did not in the least disturb his equanimity or affect the perfect honesty of his character. Shortly after this event, the opportunity occurred for exhibiting his admirable practical qualities as an administrator. Placed in command of an important district immediately after the capture of Seringapatam, his first object was to establish rigid order and discipline among his own men. Flushed with victory, the troops were found riotous and disorderly. "'Send me the provost marshal,' said he, and put him under my orders. "'Till some of the marauders are hung, it is impossible to expect order or safety.' The rigid severity of Wellington in the field, though it was the dread, proved the salvation of his troops in many campaigns. His next step was to re-establish the markets and reopen the sources of supply. General Harris wrote to the Governor-General, strongly commending Colonel Wellesley for the perfect discipline he had established, and for his judicious and masterly arrangements in respect to supplies, which opened an abundant free market and inspired confidence into dealers of every description. The same close attention to, and mastery of details, characterized him throughout his Indian career, and it is remarkable that one of his ablest dispatches to Lord Clive, full of practical information as to the conduct of the campaign, was written whilst the column he commanded was crossing the Tumbadra, in the face of the vastly superior army of Dundia, posted on the opposite bank and while a thousand matters of the deepest interest were pressing upon the commander's mind. But it was one of his most remarkable characteristics, thus to be able to withdraw himself temporarily from the business immediately at hand, and to bend his full powers upon the consideration of matters totally distinct. Even the most difficult circumstances on such occasions failing to embarrass or intimidate him. Returned to England with a reputation for generalship, Sir Arthur Wellesley met with immediate employment. In 1808, a corps of 10,000 men destined to liberate Portugal was placed under his charge. He landed, fought, and won two battles, and signed the Convention of Sintra. After the death of Sir John Moore, he was entrusted with the command of a new expedition to Portugal. But Wellington was fearfully overmatched throughout his peninsular campaigns. From 1809 to 1813, he never had more than 30,000 British troops under his command, at a time when there stood opposed to him in the peninsula some 350,000 French, mostly veterans, led by some of Napoleon's ablest generals. 
how was he to contend against such immense forces with any fair prospect of success his clear discernment and strong common sense soon taught him that he must adopt a different policy from that of the spanish generals who were invariably beaten and dispersed whenever they ventured to offer battle in the open plains he perceived he had yet to create the army that was to contend against the french with any reasonable chance of success accordingly after the battle of talavera in eighteen hundred and nine when he found himself encompassed on all sides by superior forces of french he retired into portugal there to carry out the settled policy on which he had by this time determined it was to organize a portuguese army under british officers and teach them to act in combination with his own troops in the meantime avoiding the peril of a defeat by declining all engagements he would thus he conceived destroy the morale of the french who could not exist without victories and when his army was ripe for action and the enemy demoralized he would then fall upon them with all his might the extraordinary qualities displayed by lord wellington throughout these immortal campaigns can only be appreciated after a perusal of his dispatches which contain the unvarnished tale of the manifold ways and means by which he laid the foundations of his success never was man more tried by difficulty and opposition arising not less from the imbecility falsehoods and intrigues of the british government of the day than from the selfishness cowardice and vanity of the people he went to save it may indeed be said of him that he sustained the war in spain by his individual firmness and self-reliance which never failed him even in the midst of his great discouragements he had not only to fight napoleon's veterans but also to hold in check the spanish juntas and the portuguese regency he had the utmost difficulty in obtaining provisions and clothing for his troops and it will scarcely be credited that while engaged with the enemy in the battle of talavera the spaniards who ran away fell upon the baggage of the british army and the ruffians actually plundered it these and other vexations the duke bore with a sublime patience and self-control and held on his course in the face of ingratitude treachery and opposition with indomitable firmness he neglected nothing and attended to every important detail of business himself when he found that food for his troops was not to be obtained from england and that he must rely on his own resources for feeding them he forthwith commenced business as a corn merchant on a large scale in copartnery with the british minister at lisbon commissariat bills were created with which grain was bought in the ports of the mediterranean and in south america when he had thus filled his magazines the overplus was sold to the portuguese who were greatly in want of provisions he left nothing whatever to chance but provided for every contingency he gave his attention to the minutest details of the service and was accustomed to concentrate his whole energies from time to time on such apparently ignominious matters as soldiers shoes camp kettles biscuits and horse fodder his magnificent business qualities were everywhere felt and there can be no doubt that by the care with which he provided for every contingency 
and the personal attention which he gave to every detail, he laid the foundations of his great success. By such means he transformed an army of raw levies into the best soldiers in Europe, with whom he declared it to be possible to go anywhere and do anything. We have already referred to his remarkable power of abstracting himself from the work, no matter how engrossing, immediately in hand, and concentrating his energies upon the details of some entirely different business. Thus, Napier relates that it was while he was preparing to fight the Battle of Salamanca that he had to expose to the ministers at home the futility of relying upon a loan. It was on the heights of San Cristobal, on the field of battle itself, that he demonstrated the absurdity of attempting to establish a Portuguese bank. It was in the trenches of Burgos that he dissected Funchal's scheme of finance and exposed the folly of attempting the sale of church property. And on each occasion, he showed himself as well acquainted with these subjects as with the minutest detail in the mechanism of armies. Another feature in his character, showing the upright man of business, was his thorough honesty. Whilst Salt ransacked and carried away with him from Spain numerous pictures of great value, Wellington did not appropriate to himself a single farthing's worth of property. Everywhere he paid his way, even when in the enemy's country. When he had crossed the French frontier, followed by 40,000 Spaniards who sought to make fortunes by pillage and plunder, he first rebuked their officers, and then, finding his efforts to restrain them unavailing, he sent them back into their own country. It is a remarkable fact that, even in France, the peasantry fled from their own countrymen and carried their valuables within the protection of the British lines. At the very same time, Wellington was writing home to the British ministry. We are overwhelmed with debts, and I can scarcely stir out of my house on account of public creditors waiting to demand payment of what is due to them. Jules Morel, in his estimate of the Duke's character, says, Nothing can be grander or more nobly original than this admission. This old soldier, after thirty years' service, this iron man and victorious general, established in an enemy's country at the head of an immense army, is afraid of his creditors. This is the kind of fear that has seldom troubled the mind of conquerors and invaders, and I doubt if the annals of war could present anything comparable to this sublime simplicity. But the Duke himself, had the matter been put to him, would most probably have disclaimed any intention of acting even grandly or nobly in the matter merely regarding the punctual payments of his debts as the best and most honorable mode of conducting his business. The truth of the good old maxim that honesty is the best policy is upheld by the daily experience of life, uprightness and integrity being found as successful in business as in everything else. As Hugh Miller's worthy uncle used to advise him, in all your dealings give your neighbor the cast of the bank good measure heaped up and running over, and you will not lose by it in the end. A well-known brewer of beer attributed his success to the liberality with which he used his malt. Going up to the vat and tasting it, he would say, Still rather poor, my lads, 
give it another cast of the malt. The brewer put his character into his beer, and it proved generous accordingly, obtaining a reputation in England, India, and the colonies, which laid the foundation of a large fortune. Integrity of word and deed ought to be the very cornerstone of all business transactions. To the tradesman, the merchant, and manufacturer, it should be what honor is to the soldier and charity to the Christian. In the humblest calling, there will always be found scope for the exercise of this uprightness of character. Hugh Miller speaks of the mason with whom he served his apprenticeship as one who puts his conscience into every stone that he laid. So the true mechanic will pride himself upon the thoroughness and solidity of his work, and the high-minded contractor upon the honesty and performance of his contract in every particular. The upright manufacturer will find not only honor and reputation, but substantial success in the genuineness of the article which he produces, and the merchant in the honesty of what he sells, and that it really is what it seems to be. Baron Dupin, speaking of the general probity of Englishmen, which he held to be a principal cause of their success, observed, We may succeed for a time by fraud, by surprise, by violence, but we can succeed permanently only by means directly opposite. It is not alone the courage, the intelligence, the activity of the merchant and manufacturer which maintain the superiority of their productions and the character of their country. It is far more their wisdom, their economy, and above all, their probity. If ever in the British islands the useful citizens should lose these virtues, we may be sure that, for England, as for every other country, the vessels of a degenerate commerce, repulsed from every shore, would speedily disappear from those seas whose surface they now cover with the treasures of the universe, bartered for the treasures of the industry of the three kingdoms. It must be admitted that trade tries character perhaps more severely than any other pursuit in life. It puts to the severest tests honesty, self-denial, justice, and truthfulness, and men of business who pass through such trials unsustained are perhaps worthy of as great honor as soldiers who prove their courage amidst the fire and perils of battle. And, to the credit of the multitudes of men engaged in the various departments of trade, we think it must be admitted that, on the whole, they pass through their trials nobly. If we reflect but for a moment on the vast amount of wealth daily entrusted even to subordinate persons, who themselves probably earn but a bare competency, the loose cash which is constantly passing through the hands of shopmen, agents, brokers, and clerks in banking houses, and note how comparatively few are the breaches of trust which occur amidst all this temptation. It will probably be admitted that this steady daily honesty of conduct is most honorable to human nature, if it do not even tempt us to be proud of it. The same trust and confidence reposed by men of business in each other, as implied by the system of credit, which is mainly based upon the principle of honor, would be surprising if it were not so much a matter of ordinary practice in business transactions. 
Dr. Chalmers has well said that the implicit trust with which merchants are accustomed to confide in distant agents, separated from them perhaps by half the globe, often consigning vast wealth to persons recommended only by their character, whom perhaps they have never seen, is probably the finest act of homage which men can render to one another. Although common honesty is still happily in the ascendant amongst common people, and the general business community of England is still sound at heart, putting their honest character into their respective callings, there are unhappily, as there have been in all times, but too many instances of flagrant dishonesty and fraud, exhibited by the unscrupulous, the over-speculative, and the intensely selfish in their haste to be rich. There are tradesmen who adulterate, contractors who scamp, manufacturers who give us shoddy instead of wool, dressing instead of cotton, cast-iron tools instead of steel, needles without eyes, razors made only to sell, and swindled fabrics in many shapes. But these we must hold to be the exceptional cases of low-minded and grasping men, who, though they may gain wealth which they probably cannot enjoy, will never gain an honest character, nor secure that without which wealth is nothing, a heart at peace. The rogue cozened not me, but his own conscience, said Bishop Latimer of a cutler who made him pay twopence for a knife not worth a penny. Money earned by screwing, cheating, and overreaching may for a time dazzle the eyes of the unthinking, but the bubbles blown by unscrupulous rogues, when full-blown, usually glitter only to burst. The Saddlers, Dean Pauls, and Redpaths, for the most part, come to a sad end even in this world, and though the successful swindles of others may not be found out, and the gains of their roguery may remain with them, it will be as a curse and not as a blessing. It is possible that the scrupulously honest man may not grow rich so fast as the unscrupulous and dishonest one, but the success will be of a truer kind, earned without fraud or injustice. And even though a man should for a time be unsuccessful, still he must be honest. Better lose all and save character. For character is itself a fortune. And if the high-principled man will but hold on his way courageously, success will surely come, nor will the highest reward of all be withheld from him. Wordsworth well describes the happy warrior as he who comprehends his trust and to the same, keeps faithful with a singleness of aim, and therefore does not stoop nor lie in wait, for wealth or honor or for worldly state, whom they must follow, on whose head must fall like showers of manna, if they come at all. As an example of the high-minded mercantile man, trained in upright habits of business, and distinguished for justice, truthfulness, and honesty of dealing in all things. The career of the well-known David Barclay, grandson of Robert Barclay of Uri, the author of the celebrated Apology for the Quakers, may be briefly referred to.
For many years, he was the head of an extensive house in Cheapside, chiefly engaged in the American trade. But, like Granville Sharp, he entertained so strong an opinion against the war with our American colonies that he determined to retire altogether from the trade. Whilst a merchant, he was as much distinguished for his talents, knowledge, integrity, and power as he afterwards was for his patriotism and munificent philanthropy. He was a mirror of truthfulness and honesty, and as became the good Christian and true gentleman, his word was always held to be as good as his bond. His position and his high character induced the ministers of the day on many occasions to seek his advice, and when examined before the House of Commons on the subject of the American dispute, his views were so clearly expressed and his advice was so strongly justified by the reasons stated by him that Lord North publicly acknowledged that he had derived more information from David Barclay than from all others east of Temple Bar. On retiring from business, it was not to rest in luxurious ease, but to enter upon new labors of usefulness for others. With ample means, he felt that he still owed to society the duty of a good example. He founded a house of industry near his residence in Walthamstow, which he supported at a heavy outlay for several years, until, at length, he succeeded in rendering it a source of comfort as well as independence to the well-disposed families of the poor in that neighborhood. When an estate in Jamaica fell to him, he determined, though at a cost of some ten thousand pounds, at once to give liberty to the whole of the slaves on the property. He sent out an agent who hired a ship, and he had the little slave community transported to one of the free American states, where they settled down and prospered. Mr. Barclay had been assured that the Negroes were too ignorant and too barbarous for freedom, and it was thus that he determined practically to demonstrate the fallacy of the assertion. In dealing with his accumulated savings, he made himself the executor of his own will, and instead of leaving a large fortune to be divided among his relatives at his death, he extended to them his munificent aid during his life, watched and aided them in their respective careers, and thus not only laid the foundation, but lived to see the maturity of some of the largest and most prosperous business concerns in the metropolis. We believe that to this day some of our most eminent merchants, such as the Gurneys, Hanburys, and Buxtons, are proud to acknowledge with gratitude the obligations they owe to David Barclay for the means of their first introduction to life, and for the benefits of his counsel and countenance in the early stages of their career. Such a man stands as a mark of the mercantile honesty and integrity of his country, and is a model and example for men of business in all time to come. End of section 25